Yeah, so um, apologies, I had a, a work meeting go long, so it's just the way life has been for me uh, lately. But uh, I'm excited to dive into uh, 2.8 and get into neurosis and psychosis, which I think will be very exciting. I don't know, maybe. Uh, we've now moved out of the last handful, the last, I think, three weeks were spent on uh, the last section as we went over the, uh, the final synthesis, conjunction, consummation. Uh, whew, that was a lot. I, I've spent uh, last night re-editing and finally catching up uh, on all of that, and it was a lot to listen through. <laughs> it was a lot to, to go through. Um, but now we're able to move on a little bit. We're diving a bit more into neurosis and psychosis as we continue into the story of uh, how the way that representations manifest within the realm of desire, the way that manifestations of uh, such things uh, play with us, fuck with us, destroy our desiring machines, and how uh, they sort of uh, work within our unconscious. Now within this, we're going to be moving into the fifth paralogism, I believe, paralogism of the afterward. Uh, if, if it gets to me, but uh, that is all to come. Uh, with any luck, we'll actually get through the section today. Uh, please, at any point, if you have questions, don't hesitate to uh, raise your hand by just typing in chat. I'm keeping an eye on it. We all are. Uh, if uh, Also, for our, those watching on YouTube, feel free. I'm also watching the, the chats and comments there, so feel free to say hi and say any other uh, stuff you got going on. Um, I think that'll be it, and I'm going to go ahead and dive in. So, uh, we'll begin with uh, neurosis and psychosis. In 1924, Freud proposed a simple criterion for distinguishing between neurosis and psychosis. In neurosis, the ego obeys the requirements of reality and stands ready to repress the drives of the id, whereas in psychosis, the ego is under the sway of the id, ready to break with reality. Freud's ideas often took quite some time before making their way into France. Not this one, however. That same year, Capris and Corette presented a case of schizophrenia with a delusion of doubles, where the patient manifested a strong hatred for her mother and an incestuous desire for her father, but under conditions of reality loss where the parents were lived as false parents or doubles. From this they drew the illustration that the inverse relationship the, the illustration of the inverse relationship. In neurosis, the object function of reality is preserved, but on condition that the causal complex be repressed. In psychosis, the complex invades consciousness and becomes its object, at the price of a repression that now bears on reality itself or the function of the real. Doubtless, Freud was merely insisting on the schematic character of the distinction, for the rupture is also found in neurosis with the return of the repressed, hysterical amnesia, obsessional cancellation, while in psychosis a regaining of reality appears along with the delirious reconstruction. The fact remains that Freud never dropped this simple distinction, and it seems important that, following an original path, Freud encounters again an idea dear to traditional psychiatry, that madness is fundamentally linked to a loss of reality. Thus, there is a convergence with the psychiatric elaboration of the notions of disassociation and autism, hence the reason, perhaps, for the rapid diffusion that the Freudian account enjoyed. Very quick thing I want to make sure I note on, uh, because we had this discussion last time and I just want to nip it in the bud. Uh, 
autism here is not, uh, the, the medical terms used here are not the medical terms as we may know them in common modern parlance. Uh, autism and dissociation, uh, they have some similarities in terms of like how they're sort of used, but uh, autism here is, uh, is catatonia effectively, as far as we discussed last time. Uh, please tell me if I'm wrong on any of that, but it's a little bit different than uh, what we tend to sort of consider autism today, at least as a broad spectrum sort of diagnosis. I'm going to ask what anyone sees as the point of this paragraph. What is he trying to convey? I have some ideas on this. Um, Ken? I feel like Ken wants to say something, but he's going to type instead. He's on a uh, business and pleasure call. Ah, of course, of course. He's always he's always working. Um. All right, so I'll throw out some thoughts on this paragraph. the The opening here is talking about uh, how we view neurosis and psychosis uh, from a psychoanalytic perspective. On the one side, uh, they talk early on about Freud saying that. Uh, just to say very clearly, in neurosis, the ego obeys the requirements of reality and stands ready to repress the drives of the id. Uh, uh, neurotic is a person who absolutely is attached within reality and is uh, sort of within that and able to have sort of that's the space they live in. And they're basically repressing their neurotic tendencies, the id, the, the drives underneath them. Uh, the other direction is psychosis, where the ego is fully under sway of the id. Uh, ready to break with reality. This this switch, uh, they then talk about, uh, very quickly moved on to France, uh, where the, the illustration of the inverse relationship. In neurosis, the object function of reality is preserved, but on condition the causal complex be repressed. Uh, a neurotic, in this case, uh, is one that has the complex. If it's able to be repressed, they have this repression happening with them, and reality is only able to be preserved if they are able to have that complex repressed, say, Oedipus complex. In psychosis, the complex invades consciousness and becomes its object. The, the complex becomes essentially reality to them, uh, the price of a repression that bears on reality itself. Now repression is actually about reality. They're repressing reality in favor of the complex. Uh, this is what causes psychosis, uh, according to Capgras and Corette. It's a very specific sort of juxtaposition they're setting up for what is to come as we start discussing how Oedipus plays a role within neurosis and psychosis, and then also how the neurotic and the psychotic play possibly within a slightly different uh, mentality if we were to break this down in a schizoanalytic way, which we will be doing. This is just the first paragraph. That's my breakdown of it, if anyone agrees or disagrees. This is what happens when Twin Peaks enters the chat. Right, everybody goes silent. But um, I like where you're off to. I'm, I'm reading a little bit differently in the sense that we're talking about... Um, so they're talking about how Freud... This this seems to get into Freud's use of like the the reality and the pleasure principle, right? Where the id works with the pleasure principle, right? So we're talking about desire and source of desire, going all the way back to one point one, right? What a mistake to have said the id. And we're talking about how there's a right the pleasure principle is there for for the Freudian um, schema, and how the id um, works with that, but how the ego brings uh, works through the reality principle, right? So the id will put forward a drive, right? And the ego has got to use the reality principle to kind of um, direct that, right? So 
this this makes you a neurotic because you can at least do something about your drives, right? Um, in a certain sense of speaking, right? Because they're talking about consciousness here. Whereas for the psychotic, right, the ego goes with the drives. So where, where I see Oedipus coming in here, right, because we've talked about desire as the production of the real here, right? And so this is interesting as what, what they seem to be pointing out here is the production of the real is going to be, in a sense, the, the states for Oedipus, as I'm reading this, because um, when Oedipus enters this, right, like, it sounds like the id doesn't start Oedipalized here, but with Oedipus, we kind of have more so, like, the conditions of pleasure and reality that Oedipus is going to work through, or rather work with here. I think I can get with that. Uh, the the second half of the paragraph where they start talking about, you know, um, the Freud was merely insisting on the schematic character of the distinction. They place, he says, uh, the rupture is found in neurosis with the return to the repressed, the, uh, the obsessive sort of nature of uh, the way that the repressed sort of uh, rupture in reality continues to push back on the neurotic while the psychotic, uh, the delirious reconstruction is how reality uh, sort of comes along with. Uh, and this sort of rupture in that setup. And to them, uh, Freud never dropped the distinction between kind of these setups. And uh, the final point here is I think the, the important part is that madness is fundamentally linked to a loss of reality. Um, and that's the thing that they keep po pointing towards for all of this, that it's about madness is about a disconnect from reality, the rupture from reality, whatever it may be. Um, and that's kind of the, I think, the end of their point here. Uh, they finish, hence the reason, perhaps, for the rapid diffusion that Freudian and Kant enjoyed. Uh, this is sort of the natural way we view dissociation, or at the time especially, they viewed autism as being, uh, oh, they simply can't engage with reality. Uh, this is, people were assuming this about madness in general. Oh, they can't have reality. They've got to have something wrong with them. Reality is, you know, the, the well, we'll come to see, uh, and they've already discussed, it's the, the social, the socius, the, the, the social network that they're part of, and their ability to sort of uh, take it in in a healthy way, uh, which is kind of where a lot of this comes from, at least in the Freudian side. Yeah, and this is kind of interesting, right, because we're seeing how Oedipus here, in terms of repression and that, right, part of what Oedipus works with is um, the states of reality and desire, right? So um, just like you're saying, right, dissociation from reality, right, which is going to be madness here, is something like um, pleasure kind of spilling into everything, right? Or more directly, perhaps, for Deleuze and Guadalupe's argument, right, that desire simply happens, right? Um, you know, without, uh, without kind of uh, fetters in a certain manner of speaking, right? And so this is kind of interesting because we're seeing like Oedipus here, right? We're not necessarily talking about the superego super here, right? But Oedipus does something to reality and desire here, right? And this is kind of how we're going to understand um, the psychotic and the neurotic in terms of uh, the reality and pleasure principles. And with that, I think uh, I'll move to the next paragraph because uh, a short, well, short one, but sort of dives right into what you're talking about. What interests us is the precise role of the Oedipus complex in this convergence. For if it is true that the familial themes often erupt into a psychotic consciousness, we would be all the more surprised, in line with the remark by Lacan, if Oedipus were in fact discovered 
in neurosis, where it is supposed to be latent, rather than psychosis, where it is to be held, held to be patent. But isn't it true instead that, in psychosis, the familial complex appears precisely as a stimulus whose quality is a matter of indifference, a simple inductor not playing the role of organizer, where the intensive investments of reality bear on something totally different? Social, historical, or even cultural fields. Oedipus simultaneously invades consciousness and dissolves into itself, testifying to its incapacity to be an organizer. Uh, Driving back, I think, a little bit to where you were heading, uh, Jack. Uh, the, a lot of this point is them talking about, uh, do these complexes, how do they operate on the unconscious? How do they make things happen? Is the drive coming from the id and the complex is coming out of that? Does the family play into this? How does it work? And again, within Freud, a lot of that is as we're formed over time. Uh, the family does a lot of that stuff, and if they don't do a good job of helping us merge properly with reality, we become neurotic or psychotic based on that, and the complexes sort of come with that, including Oedipus, which is a uh, complex we are innately have as humans. It organizes all of these other things. And their point in this paragraph is, no, actually, Oedipus simultaneously invades consciousness and dissolves into itself, which that fact alone testifies to its inability to be this organizer that supposedly is putting all of this together in the first place or did, or did yeah. that make no sense i like where you're going with that right because they write but isn't it true instead then psychosis the familial complex appears precisely as a stimulus whose quality is a matter of indifference a simple inductor not playing the role of organizing where the intensive investments of reality bear on something totally different to social historical and cultural fields Oedipus simultaneously invades consciousness and dissolves into itself, testifying to its incapa into incapacity to be a, a so-called organizer, right? So right here, like the whole, so the premise that um, there is this disillusionment from reality um, through like Oedipus and that, right? That's kind of being thrown away here, right? Because um, we just saw how the psychotics don't correspond to the Oedipus complex, right? They don't have this familial um ancestral engagement with the uh the father and the mother here right and if anything it's topsy-turvy all you can do is try and reverse that right or argue it is a reversal and if it's a reversal well you're kind of in trouble if you're going to argue that it's like at the same time you know the predicate right because how could it be reversed then but uh to make a concluding point and that's important because then if oedipus doesn't do the doesn't function as an organizer, right? What does it do? Well, and that's, I'll just continue the next paragraph because that's literally the first line. Once this is admitted, it is enough to measure psychosis against this fuke. What is, what is this PDF doing? What, what's the word in the original? Please, anyone? Fuke? I like fuke, but this fake standard. Fake. <laughs> of course it's fake. Oh my God. Once this is admitted, it is enough to measure psychosis against this fake standard, enough to lead it to a false criterion. Oedipus to obtain the loss of reality effect. This is not an abstract operation, an Oedipal organization is imposed on the psychotic, though for the sole purpose of assigning the lack of this organization in the psychotic in his very body. It is an exercise in naked flesh, in the depths of the soul. The psychotic reacts with autism and with the loss of reality. 
Could it be the loss of reality is not the effect of the schizophrenic process, but the effect of its forced edipalization, that is to say, its interruption? Must we correct what we were saying a little earlier and suppose that some tolerate edipalization less well than others? Thus the schizo would not be ill within the Oedipus complex, from an Oedipus arising all the more in his hallucinated consciousness as he lacked it in the symbolic organization of his unconscious? On the contrary, he is ill because of the Oedipalization to which he is made to submit, the most somber organization, and which he can no longer tolerate. He who has gone on a distant journey, as though one were constantly bringing back home the person capable of setting whole continents and cultures adrift. He is not suffering from a divided self or a shattered Oedipus, but on the contrary, from having been brought back to everything he had left. A drop in intensity to the body without organs is zero. Autism. Schizo has no other means of reacting to this, blocking all of the investments of reality, the barriers placed before him by the Oedipal system of social and psychic repression. As Lang says, they are interrupted in their journey. They have lost reality. But when did they lose it? During the journey, or during the interruption of the journey? So, here they're asking uh, the sort of the, one of the big questions of a lot of this, which uh, they've been hinting at quite a bit, and now they're starting to get at really harsh. The question is, uh, commonly thought uh, in psychoanalytic sort of history, and this is across the board from Freud to Lacan, the idea is uh, you're a psychotic, you're already broken, you're already on a broken journey of schizophrenia, and that is what need, you need to be helped by, you're already broken. Uh, then the question would be, uh, we bring you back, we heal you, great, we oedipalize you, yay then. But wait, this is kind of happens hand in hand. So the question is, uh, is is it that the person's already broken or that they're, as they would say, uh, they're on a journey and we grab them and we force them into a very specific box. And at that point is when they get broken, but we blame it on the journey. And that's their question they end with here is during the journey or during the interruption. It's not equals zero. I'm going to go back to that. A drop in intensity of the body without organs equals it's it's O. The, no, the I think the way I read that at least is when they talk earlier in this book and also later in uh, a thousand plateaus they talk about like the zero intensity body the the body without organs with its like purely mechanistic automatic responses to things like it's not incapable but like all the all the stimulus the body without organs received is is reacted to in an like, like a machinic engineered automatic function it has no like intensity in and of itself so like i i, I that's what i read here when they're talking about a drop in intensity to maybe. the body without organs equals zero okay maybe it's a translation too but it, on my book it's definitely an o like it's round so well, it, it may be, um, I mean, they, they have a lot of clip. I, I do believe it, they, their intention here is to mean what Ben said. They may be trying to be clever about it, where the intensity of the body without organs uh, is O, uh, uh, oof, egg, zero. Um, yeah, they, it's also the first le letter of organs, so maybe it's a problem here. Yeah, they... they and also they, autism sign. 
um, to it, like it's starting the vanilla. Yeah, uh, the, the, the big deal here is um, the, the, the phrase they have here, the specific, the whole thing, and I, it's a thing that they've referenced elsewhere, so I can be fairly confident in, I think, what they're trying to get at, which is that uh, having been brought from everything back to everything he had left, uh, the intensities of the body without organs are earned via the intensities of experience, the, the actual lived realities and connections that a person has had. Um, a schizo would have that as well so they would be going out and connecting on their like out on a walk seeing the trees and everything all of that but then we pull them back and we say oh no no you know you, everything you left behind this 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 other thing the the zero the, the before experience you get to lose all of that intensity and now you go to this and that that's to them uh the the catatonia uh, i'm going to start saying catatonia instead of autism but the, you know that's the realm they're playing in here so it's the the schizo has no other means of reacting to this blocking all of his investments of reality the barriers placed before him it's the the natural reaction to this is to just drop to zero uh heat death heat death is the word i use for it uh the lack of intensity at all no movement just there reminds me of superman but yeah, I, I think that's pretty much it because, right, so the question being, what is it that it's doing? Maybe it doesn't organize the desire, right, especially if it's dissolving consciousness, right? Right, because it's not feeling conscious. So it seems what it does is it affects the schizophrenic processes by kind of um, damning them. Uh, not in the sense of uh, hell, but damning like a fever dance, right? So you're kind of, you're seeing desire here kind of, uh, reacting to perimeters being established right so i'll continue um because now we're discussing again where the complex enters where where oedipalization uh, messes with a person is it, it where do they get the sickness from is it from the journey or is it during the interruption of the journey hence another possible formulation of an inverse relationship there would be something like two groups, uh, psychotics and neurotics, those who do not tolerate oedipalization and those who tolerate it and are even content with it and evolve within it, those on whom the Oedipal imprint does not take and those on whom it does. Quote, I believe my friends cast off in a group at the start of the new age with forces for a practical explosion that thrust them in the paternalistic deviation that I find depraved. A second group of loners, of which I am a part, doubtless constituted by centers of collarbones, was deprived of any possibility of individual success at the moment they were engaged in laborious studies in innate science. With regard to them, my rebellion against the paternalism of the first group placed me, from the second year, in a socially difficult position that was growing more and more suffocating. So, do you believe these two groups are capable of being joined? Am I, I am not too angry with these bastards of vile, virile paternalism. I am not vindictive. In any case, if I have won, there will be no more struggle between the father and the son. I am speaking of God's people, naturally, not of those close to him who take themselves for his people. End quote. It is the recording of desire on the increate body, without organs, and the familial recording on the socius that are in opposition throughout the two groups the innate science in psychosis, and the neurotic experimental sciences, the schizoid eccentric circle, and the neurosis triangle. 
This is a lot here. <sighs> I shouldn't be using... I'm streaming the only copy. Someone want to find the footnote? Oh, uh, Webcam Parrot, uh, why don't you dive in real quick while I find this footnote? Um, well, I just thought it was interesting that in an earlier section, they they talked about the uh, the Oedipus um, with respect to, to, to a certain way of doing psychoanalysis as uh, the thing that induces but does not do um, the organization. And, and this book is uh, largely about organization, with the exception of one thing, which, which uh, is, of course, the, uh, the thing which lacks organs, right? The thing that is not organized, the body without organs. And it almost seems like they're saying that to the psychoanalyst, Oedipus, um, what was what they are sort of um, perhaps unknowingly here calling the, uh, the body without organs, in that um, it's like the background, much like the body with the organs is the background for all of the intensive properties to occur on, right? The the Oedipal is the background by which everything else uh, uh, to the psychoanalyst uh, uh, happens on um, and, and is, you know, all coordinates uh, uh, correspond to the Oedipal uh, in some way. Um, and, I, and I also think it's interesting that they've started talking about the body with their organs uh, again, after not talking about it for such a long time, for, for several sections, they haven't mentioned it at all. And now suddenly they're coming back to it in this section. Uh, and absolutely, that's a really great point because the timing is because we're kind of, uh, if if we want to look at the last three sections, uh, the BWO and its implications on uh, the first handful of paralogisms, I think is, uh, I don't want to say negligible, but it's not really the point uh like the the big thing but here they're definitely going to be getting into that so that's really fair hmm. although i don't know if that's well, the question came up a lot of times <laughs> earlier into the reading where it was like oh what's an example of a body without organs and i don't know if the oedipus is the best way to answer that question <laughs> either but um, they seem to be implying something like that at least yeah there's a, there's a they do the 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 structure of a thing that sort of invades and and does stuff sort of a structure that has its own an apparatus i think is uh what's the what's the what's the word they started using god damn it assemblage assemblage thank you i i don't think the body of the organs is an assemblage it's the opposite of an assemblage right well it, it is but ed i mean the edible complex is a fairly is an assemblage I think to them it's an assemblage, and to the psychoanalyst it's not. Yes, yes. And that's their problem with it. Um, and it's worth mentioning, so the, the middle text here, uh, I wanted to confirm what I remembered. So there was a patient at Laborde uh, who actually became a writer uh, and wrote a great deal. Uh, name was uh, Jacques Bess, uh, and this passage is from uh, the, I'm not, the Grand, I'm just going to post it, so we can have a French person since we have one here. Say it aloud uh, for me, Michael, if you would. Well, maybe not. So it's uh, Jacques Bess, uh, Le Grand Pac. It's La Grande Pac. La Grande Pac. Um, so uh, Jacques Bess is a, a fairly, I don't want to say prolific author, but has a handful of uh, books that are, and this one I, we read the last time around because he's mentioned a few times, uh, specifically uh the earlier sections where they talk about a schizo on a walk, they mentioned Bess very quickly. They, they mentioned a handful of other authors as well. Um, Mess is interesting because 
his writings are specifically from his own perspective. He's not writing about another character. It's very semi-audio, uh, autobiographical. And so uh, as he's going on his walk, uh, this passage here, and as well as the other passages, is very much from his perspective. Uh, he was a patient of Guattari's, uh, very specifically. So obviously a lot of this has a very specific use and sort of passage for them. Uh, um, so there's very deep connection between them. Uh, the passage here, and the reason that it's it's used as they talk about it, um, the discussion he's having here is about the social connections and groups that he was a part of, and uh, specifically that uh, he joined uh, one group uh, to play off against another, and uh, it had to do with the paternalism of them and bringing in the father. This is his overall sort of uh, stance inside of this, is the way that these things get paternalized and how the relations between the familial recording and uh, the recording of desire sort of play against it. And within these groups, how they sort of are in opposition. Specifically, they, they do summarize this. I just want to make sure I go over that uh, with by saying, it is the recording of desire on the increate body without organs and the familial recording on the socius that are in opposition throughout the groups. Uh, as he describes them very specifically, the way that the groups operate uh, their own uh, desires that are being recorded, their own, the things they want to do aren't shit they're doing because, very specifically, they are bastards of virile paternalism, which I kind of like as a specific phrase. Um, but it's uh, that is where he's ascribing that. And for him, it's a big deal because there's so much they want to do, but it's being sort of, again, we might say triangulated, as they say here, the schizoid eccentric circle being squished into the neuro neurotic triangle. That's how I read this whole part. It's a really interesting piece. I'll copy uh, a summary that I had saved from last time in uh, uh, the chat. Yeah, and I, I really like how a webcam here you kicked this off because you're asking, I think, one of the guiding questions for this chapter and certainly going into the next chapter, right, which is what makes Oedipus possible and by extension, what does Oedipus do, right? So we've seen the three paralogisms, right, and how they play into Oedipus. We've now seen the fourth paralogism of displacement, right? And we've seen Oedipus in relation to all that. And now we're seeing Oedipus in a relationship of the body without organs, right, and the, the socius, right? And this is kind of interesting because now we're, we're focusing more directly, even though we haven't gotten too deep into the socius in this book yet on how Oedipus relates to the two, right? All right, I will continue to the next part. On a more general level, it is the two kinds of use made of synthesis that are in opposition. On the one hand, there are the desiring machines, and on the other, the Oedipal narcissistic machine. In order to understand the details of the struggle, it must be borne in mind that the family relentlessly operates on desiring production inscribing itself into the recording process of desire, clutching at everything, the family performs a vast appropriation of the productive forces. It displaces and reorganizes in its own fashion the entirety of the connection and the hiatuses that characterize the machines of desire. It reorganizes them all along the lines of the universal castration that conditions the family itself. Quote, a dead rat's ass, said Artaud, suspended from the ceiling of the sky. But it also redistributes these breaks in accordance with its own laws and the requirements of social production. The inscription performed by the family follows the pattern of its triangle by distinguishing what belongs to the family from what does not. 
it also cuts inwardly along the lines of differentiation that form global persons. There's daddy, there's mommy, there you are, then there's your sister. Cut into the flow of milk here, it's your brother's turn. Don't shit here, don't take a crap here, cut into the stream of shit over there. Retention is the primary function of the family. It is a matter of learning what elements of desiring production the family is going to reject, what it is going to retain, what it is going to direct along the dead-end roads leading to its own undifferentiated, the miasma, and what on the contrary is going to lead down the paths of a contagious and reproducible differentiation. For the family creates, at the same time, its disgraces and its honors. The non-differentiation of its neurosis and the differentiation of its ideal which are distinguishable only in appearance. I, I stumbled on that one because uh, I've had to tell my son not to take a shit in the place. So that's a thing I've done. So there you go. I'm the bastard, apparently. That's a thing. I, I can only assume that this is, this is just how families operate, like no matter what sort of time frame, at least uh, within, you know, nuclear family capital. But, uh, man, it was just like I was reading that. I was like, fuck. I had to tell Dexter that. <laughs> oh, uh, I think you're onto something about like this just being like the general operation of families. Uh, even if you go back to like Druism and Confucianism and like old Chinese philosophy, like the whole the whole point is to use like the family and like the family social status as a repression mechanism for people's behavior. But it's the the big deal here is uh, the, sort of the second line of this, which is on the one hand there's desiring machines, on the other the Oedipal narcissistic machine. The Oedipal narcissistic machine is the family ensuring it's a family. It is a uh, it is a thing that creates itself, continues to push itself. Uh, that once it's created, once it's a thought, once it's part of how things are organized, it does what it can to keep that thing going, and it's. Uh, Again, kind of the way that that works. Uh, retention is the primary function of the family. It is a matter of learning what elements of desiring production the family is going to reject, what it is going to retain, what it is going to direct along the dead-end roads leading to its own undifferentiated, and what, on the contrary, it is going to lead down the paths of a contagious and reproducible differentiation. Uh, that is essentially how the uh not how, the assemblage works that's what assemblages do that's it and this is the early part of assemblage basically uh, families reject something they allow others they encourage other behaviors and incentivize their own replication and continuation just like when i uh you know i told dexter not to shit where he shit or uh and when your son looks up at you and goes i'm a cat it's and that's a problem by the way just if you ever have kids don't your kid ever does that and he's two and a half he's taking a shit somewhere um but it's it, you, these things sort of just become a, are you being a good enough parent are you being a right dad are you placing the right restrictions on him and the societal pressure on you as a parent to do that is is difficult in and of itself but again this is their conversation they're having is the syntheses are in opposition dexter's desiring machines are doing what they're doing and they're always going to do what they do my job role inside of a family and my wife's 
is to sculpt him into a person who can survive within society well. And you'll hear people say this a lot. This is my job is to make sure I'm preparing my child for the world. This is even the nicest, kindest parents. That's how they talk about it. And this is how you do that. Prepare them for the world. And what it means is to properly mold them into something that's allowed to uh, function inside of how society works. At least that's how I read this. And I know I'm probably taking it overtly personally because that's the way that goes. But hey. Well, I mean, that's it, though, is this opposition between the socius and the bodywell organs, or more directly between the familial and the um, just the unconscious, right? So, it, like we said, right, we've got um, we've got desiring machines being affected by the Oedipal, right? So we've got like the, the schizoid process encountering um, what I'm calling damnation, right? But just you know, just barriers, right? And uh, I don't want to say dissociation, but uh, breaks with social investments, right? Or breaks with desiring investments, yeah. And at the same time, you've got these um, something going on with Oedipus or the familial here, right? Which is in part performing segregated uses, right? Like this is kind of getting into the exclusive disjunction or the second paralogism, right? Where we're starting to see this either or um, affecting desire. Yeah. And I'm, I'm just going to continue because it continues on from there. The, the family's working. My, Brooks, the dad, is doing his thing. Well, the, the question is, what's Dexter's desiring machines doing? So, well, this is taking place. What is desiring production doing? The retained elements do not enter into the new use of synthesis that imposes such a profound change on them without causing the whole triangle to reverberate. The desiring machines are at the door. They make everything shake when they enter. Moreover, what does not enter causes perhaps even more vibrations to be felt. The desiring machines reintroduce or attempt to reintroduce their deviant cuts and breaks. The child feels the task required of him, but what is to be put into the triangle? How are the selections to be made? The father's nose or the mother's ear, will, will that do? Can that be retained? Will that constitute a good Oedipal incision? And the bicycle horn? What is part of the family? It is the triangle's job to vibrate, to resonate, under the pressure of what it retains as much as what it thrusts aside. Resonance, here again, either muffled or public, disgraceful or proud, is the family's section, second function. Family is at the same time an anus that retains, a voice that resounds, and a mouth that consumes. Its very own three syntheses, since it is a matter of connecting desire to the ready-made objects of social production. Go buy Madeleines and Combray if you really want to feel the vibrations. I don't have the slightest clue what the fuck that means. Proust. It's Proust. Of course it's fucking Proust. Proust. I mean, that's like the most famous part of Proust, the, hey. the episode Proust of the Madeleine. The, the, the Proustian reference. Not all of us have an instant read and understand the moment. That's the most famous, so please, come on. Okay, so Proust... Uh, is writing in Swan's Way in the first chapter, uh, Ombre, uh the narrator, uh, eats this th th this cookie. It's called a madeleine. A cookie is maybe not the right word. A biscuit. Um, and uh, it's more of a cake. It's cake. Yeah, They're cake cakey. is the They're right cakey. word. Yeah, it's just like uh. Uh, and it's it's soaked uh with a 
a, a type of like tea that infuses it with a certain flavor and it uh all of a sudden calls up a memory that he's not considered basically in years and it floods back in like perfect memory uh him eating this madeline as a child uh his aunt dipping it in like a special medicinal tea and giving it to him in her house that his family would spend the summers in in Cambrai in France. And then the like whole city in its like essence comes back to him in his memory. And it like exists as vibrant as it ever did. And it's like this really well-written, uh, uh, linguistically vibrant section of Swan's Way that uh, is referenced in a lot of other media. So then is this reference here uh, is, is pointing towards the fact that the, the vibrations are all around it. The, the triangle's job is essentially to vibrate, to resonate, and he is basically going through this hyper-nostalgic sort of, here, I may have desiring machines, but here is how they're formed, and these ready-made objects of social production are sitting there waiting for him. Kind of. I, I think when they say, like, uh, the family is at the same time an anus that retains a voice that resounds and a mouth that consumes as very own three syntheses, since it is a matter of connecting desire to the ready-made objects of social production. Go by Madeleine's and Cambrai, if you really want to feel the vibrations, right? So there's something happening here where desiring production is getting linked with social production, right? And, and that in of itself gives us three syntheses, right? Or we're seeing three syntheses used to do this connective work. Yeah, I think uh, the whole, there's like a, the, the, the main project in, in, uh, in Search of Lost Time is sort of like the, delineation delineation and definition and sort of experience of time and losing time and wasting time and regaining time and finding time in its essence but um a secondary project throughout the series of novels is like sort of how does uh how does how do these social elements and processes and aspects uh interplay with each other to create people's personal lives there's the 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 Dreyfus affair which rocks through France and uh divides communities and establishes new alliances along social lines against family lines and uh World War 1 and uh so like i i i think so like Cambrai, the the city itself is a ready-made social object full of other ready-made social interactions uh, is also kind of like a point he might be making. That makes sense. I like that. Well, and to your point about resonance, Brooks, so we're getting at the point of like, why does it resonate, right? You know, what causes the, uh, or what are the conditions for this uh, this familial triangle to do this resonation, right? And part of that seems to be this uh, this selective process, right? Because we we have to understand here too. Uh, let me see if desiring machines reintroduce or attempt to reintroduce the deviant cuts and braids. But what is to be put into the triangle? How are the selections made? What is part of the family? 
It is the triangle's job to vibrate, to resonate under the pressure of what it retains as much as what it thrusts aside. So this point about resonance, right? There have to be exclusions here for this resonance, to, or rather there have to be exclusions and inclusions in the triangle for the resonance to take place, it seems to me. Right, so we're talking about these linkages, and with that we're talking about how the familial does do this retention, right, this kind of holding within the triangle, but it also pushes things outside of the triangle, right, or that is to say the demarcation comes with things outside that triangle, like we saw with the social investments earlier. Or I shouldn't say the social, the desiring investments earlier. All right. I'm going to move on to the next part. We now come to the realization that the simple opposition between these two groups is inadequate. An opposition that would allow one to define neurosis as an intra-edipal disorder and psychosis as an extra-edipal escape. It is not even enough to state that the two groups are capable of being joined. Rather, it is the possibility of discriminating directly between the two that creates difficulty. How can we distinguish between the pressure that familial reproduction exercises on desiring production and the pressure that desiring production exercises on familial reproduction? The Oedipal Triangle vibrates and trembles, but is this in terms of the hold over the machines of desire that it constantly guarantees itself, or in terms of these machines that escape the Oedipal imprint and cause the Triangle to release its grip? Where does the resonance of the Triangle reach its limit? The familial romance does... Uh, sorry, a familial romance expresses an effort to save the Oedipal genealogy, but it also expresses a free thrust of non-Oedipal genealogy. Fantasies are never pregnant forms, but border on frontier phenomena ready to cross over to one, so from one, to one side or the other. In short, Oedipus is strictly undecidable. It can be found everywhere all the more readily for being undecidable, and, in this sense, it is correct to say that Oedipus is strictly good for nothing. The, the thing that's interesting here, I'm going to try to take a crack at this, because there's a lot said here, and uh, it's one of the paragraphs I definitely have trouble with, because it sounds like, to me, that they're saying, essentially, because uh, there's no way for us to say whether or not desiring machines actually produce Oedipus, or if the familial reproduction pushes down and creates Oedipus within desire, uh, that standoff, and there's no way to sort of ever solve that, uh, naturally makes Oedipus sort of this thing that becomes quickly undecidable. That because we can't say where it starts, uh, Oedipus isn't necessarily good for anything. It doesn't allow us to say, oh, uh, it's definitely not something here, but it's also definitely not a thing here. It's like, uh, then who cares? Is kind of what they're saying. Am I wrong with that? I mean, maybe that's the way in which they're critical of it, right? Because they're okay with other things like that. Um, but uh, I, I think to the extent that they're critical is that it's treated like it is that way, but it's actually the other way. Uh, as in, someone would like to think that it doesn't make a statement on whether something is, is good or bad, but then is frequently used as such. Oh. Well, I like that, actually. It's uh, describing sort of an ethics to Oedipus is, is their problem with it, saying, oh, it's 
good or bad or we need to eliminate it or we need to do that like no it's 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 a complex sure uh but to say it's created in one place or another we have no way of knowing so let's set it aside and talk more about the things that actually create such things or could create such things or be involved in that and sort of sidestepping it entirely yeah because i don't think they necessarily have a problem with oedipus just existing right it's the application of oedipus in a specific way that's oh, very yeah, common of course yes they're being critical of yes yes absolutely it may be called anti-Oedipus, but they're actually not against Oedipus as a thing. They're against Oedipus as a, a determinate thing. Uh, and the structure that we've given it and the power we've given it within uh, how it forms us. Maybe uh, anti-Oedipalization would be a better title. Yeah, anti-Oedipalization is probably a better, better one for sure. Uh, Ken, can you say why you disagree with fantasy not being pregnant and maybe give a for those of us who maybe don't didn't see much issue there, what how do you interpret the phrase fantasies are never pregnant forms, but border on frontier phenomena? All right, cool. Well, we'll give you a second to get in the other room. Uh, does anyone have any questions so far? Oh, it was a good spot. We'll take a second as Ken's moving over. Does anyone here have questions, thoughts, issues about what's happening or who's talking here or anything that's being said? Like... Now's the time. Let's do it. So, uh, I suppose you can hear me all right. Um, uh, well, I mean, the first thing, uh, Oedipus is uh, uh, makes being in existence all one thing, and that's the failure not to be. So, uh under the guise of oedipus and psychoanalysis and this is like going back to freud's idea of like specific idea of the death drive being the return to in in organic state or whatever that uh that being is a fundamental failure of non-being and i don't know that's sort of a difficult thing to introject and work with so that's one thing um but the thing on fantasy not being pregnant, maybe I'm just not reading it right. But I mean, you can have uh, uh, auto poetic fantasies, you know, um, and and they don't initially have any sort of meaning per se until until someone tells you what it means, and then that's a problem because that quashes desiring production. But maybe I misread it, but I, I, I sort of want to hold on to fant fantasy being an, an, an important aspect of desiring production. I guess. But, I, but maybe they just mean specifically the edible fantasy, you know, maybe not all fantasy. But it's interesting here because they're calling fantasies phenomena, so it sounds... To me, this sounds like we're talking about the conscious here, or at least pre-conscious, maybe. But um, it sounds like part of Oedipus is that fantasies, because Oedipus is um, so like this is kind of what we were getting at with like the anti-Oedipalization versus anti-Oedipus, right? The the trouble with um, the neurotic and the psychotic, right, is it's not that we can um, 
define one as intraedipole and the other as extraedipole escape, right? So you can't just be psychotic to get out of this. It's not enough to say that two groups can, are capable of being joined. Sorry, that you can be neurotic and uh, psychotic. Rather, it is the possibility of discriminating directly between the two that creates the difficulty, right? So they're, they're kind of conflating, it seems to me. And this seems to be the point about Oedipus um, being strictly undecidable, is that, you know, whether you're neurotic or, or psychotic here, there seems to be a kind of Oedipal um, condition for that, right? Because Oedipus seems to be, you know, we talked in the beginning about like how the reality and uh, pleasure principle at stake, and Oedipus seems to be kind of working with those two here. And so I guess like fantasy, what's happening to it is um, in relation to this Oedipal uh, sort of confluence, right, fantasy seems to be something happening at like at least pre-conscious or conscious level, right? So it's not something that the unconscious is, seems to be producing here directly. It seems to be something that um, is pushing into consciousness. And therefore, right, like Oedipus is, uh, as we as we conclude here, right, Oedipus is good for nothing here. So any pregnancy wouldn't, you know, what are you going to do with that in terms of Oedipus, right? It doesn't pregnate anything. Yeah, I would want to de-Oedipalize fantasy there um, first because, yeah, to make it more coherent, the psychoanalytic view is the idea that, um, and I think maybe Freud said this somewhere, maybe not, um, that, you know, it's it's sort of like the way a crystal lattice breaks. Uh, like the whole idea is that subjectivity is caused by failure. And, and a crystal lattice breaks along typical lines. And for psychoanalysis, those three lines are the neurotic, the psychotic, and the perverse. And each three have... Uh, a specific relationship to <clears throat> whatever psychoanalytic structures. So the, well, I, I guess I won't go into them, but I mean, that's already a problem, right? Because already right there, you're reducing all of contingent being into contingently being a subject into three modes. Um, and so you can only have three types of, and that just seems, uh, like empirically wrong well i think there's so their, their use of fantasy throughout uh, just as a quick mention uh i think might be a thing worth having a secondary discussion on uh they have the line in here where they say that uh dream and fantasy are to myth and tragedy as private property is to public property uh, which seems to be uh more sort of indicating they all are essentially the same thing but we've separated and siphoned off specific parts by choice rather than by function uh and that kind of is how they get into a great deal of this and their their major critique of psychoanalysis is sort of about playing with that and how the representations that they discover inside of this universal libido or whatever like get reanimated and made subjective to extend mythic and tragic contents to infinity. That's a quote from later on in the book. So I think when we talk about their use of, of fantasy or dream or myth or all of these things, they're these large scale representations. I think their usage is very different than what we might traditionally be using for it. Yeah. So like Lewis Carroll 
for example, in in uh, Alice, right? Um, there's since there, there's all sorts of weird ways to go. <clears throat> you aren't funneled into uh, three ways of being uh, uh, of being produced as a subject, like uh, insofar as the unconscious produces subjectivity. Um, the and also I think another thing is that fantasy is rarely a private affair. Like it may may seem private because you might not speak about it, but I think fantasies are always not always. Well, yeah, why not? Always collective. Well, yeah, no, the, and I mean they they specifically say that uh, that so. Again, I think it, it's a question of how we're using this. So to them, uh, desiring production doesn't create fantasies. It's not how it works. Desiring production is just producing shit over and over and over. Uh, and then as a result of social organization, social repression, and the overproduction or underproduction or antiproduction or, you know, the complexities around that, does someone create fantasy as a uh, sort of parallel world of gratification? Uh, the term they use is imaginary compensation uh, sort of for that lack so it's a very specific use of fantasy and for that it does like that usage I is my understanding of how they sort of use it without and so because of that like yeah fantasies are themselves not pregnant forms they're frontier phenomena ready to cross from one side they, they themselves are not necessarily pregnant forms this would be worth going back into chapter two section two where they actually they go into fantasy a little bit more directly there for instance they write uh and this is page 63 in the penguin in this respect klasowski has convincingly shown the inverse relationship that pulls the fantasy in two directions as the economic law establishes perversions in the so-called psychic exchanges or as the psychic exchanges on the contrary promote a subversion of the law uh, they go on the two kinds of fantasy, or rather the two regimes, are therefore distinguished according to whether the social production of so-called goods imposes its rule on desire through the intermediary of an ego, whose fictional unity is guaranteed by the goods themselves, or whether the desiring production of affects imposes its rule on institutions whose elements are no longer anything but drives. So the point being that there is there is a little bit more discussion of fantasy and even a little bit of repression going on uh, around pages 62, maybe 64 in chapter 2, section 2. I meant, forgot to mention earlier, for more on autism, chapter 1, section 4 goes into that. And they're, they're, they're engaging with autism as part of schizophrenia more directly. But I, Ken, I think We'll have, we'll have to have this discussion because I think we're using fantasy differently and I'm, it's worth us having this chat for sure because I want to make sure I'm understanding it for, for sure I want to make sure I'm understanding the proper usage of this within like their revoir so uh, let's can I put a pen in it for a little bit and continue to the next paragraph is that okay alright uh, let us turn to the beautiful story of Gerard de Neval he wants orally his fondest love to be the same as Adrienne, the little girl of his childhood. He perceives them as identical, and Arlie and Adrienne, both in one, are his mother. 
Will it be said that the identification as a perceptual identity is here a sign of psychosis? One then encounters the criterion of reality. The complex invades the psychotic consciousness only at the price of a rupture with the real, whereas in neurosis, the identity remains that of the unconscious representations and does not compromise perception. But what is there to gain from inscribing everything on Oedipus, even psychosis? One step further in Darley, Adrian, and the mother are the virgin. Nerval seeks the point where the vibration of the triangle is at its limit. Quote, you are simply seeking for a dream, says Arlie. Everything is not inscribed in Oedipus without everything as its extreme, at its extreme, fleeing beyond the reach of Oedipus. These identifications were not identifications with persons from the viewpoint of perception, but identifications of names with regions of intensity that provide the impetus toward other, still more intense regions, stimuli of one sort or another that set in motion another journey altogether. Stacy's that prepare for other breakthroughs, other movements, where the mother is no longer encountered but the virgin and God. And twice I have crossed and conquered the Asheron. Thus, the schizo will accept the reduction of everything to the mother, since it is of no importance whatsoever. He is sure to be able to make everything rise again from the mother, and to keep for his own secret use all the virgins that had been placed there. Oh no, what's the real translation, Michael? <laughs> Is it the and twice I have crossed? No, so, yeah, uh, it's just uh, El Desticado, he says, um, in El Desticado, he says, I have crossed three times the Acheron. Well, that's different than twice. So I'm confused at why uh, they translated three times in twice. Maybe it's... Um, number of, of feet in the poetry in English, maybe? I don't know. Oh, whatever. That's weird. That's a weird one. Um, <sighs> French numbers are tricky. I mean, one, two, three, you never know. I mean, fuck, I'm already lost. Um, so, uh, this is this is essentially continuing the, the same argument. They're utilizing uh, Gerard de Naval as and his story as a an ex explanation of this and breaking it down even further to continue talking about uh, what we get from Oedipus in this situation. Is it this or is it that? And ultimately, they're all the Virgin Mary. Are they all God? And they all come down to those archetypes, ultimately. And everything can be squished into that. Because, as they say, the schizo will accept the reduction of everything to the mother, since it's of no importance. He's sure of being able to make everything rise again from the mother and to keep for his own secret use all the virgins that had been placed there, all the things that he had connected uh, get put there, and he's able to pull them back. Sure, he's able to go in. Uh, and they continue this. I actually think I'm just going to dive to the next paragraph, unless there's a comment on this one, because it continues the same line of thought very quickly. Everything can be converted into neurosis or warped out of shape into psychosis. It is therefore not in this fashion that the question must be posed. It would be inaccurate to maintain an Oedipal interpretation for the neuroses, and to reserve an extra Oedipal explanation for the psychoses. These are not two groups. There is no difference in nature between neuroses and psychoses. For in any case, desiring production is the cause, the ultimate cause of both the psychotic subversions that shatter Oedipus or overwhelm it, and of the neurotic reverberations that constitute it. 
Such a principle takes on its full meaning if it is related to the problem of actual factors. One of the most important points of psychoanalysis was the evaluation of the role of these actual factors. Even in neurosis, insofar as they are distinguishable from the familial infantile factors, all the major dissensions were linked to this evaluation. The difficulties bore on several aspects. First, the nature of these factors. Were they somatic, social, metaphysical? Were they the famous problem of living? through which a very pure desexualized idealism was reintroduced into psychoanalysis. In the second place, the modality of these factors, did they act in a negative, privative fashion by mere frustration? Finally, their moment, their own time. Was it not self-evident that the actual factor arose afterward, and signified recent in opposition to the infantile, or the oldest factor that could be sufficiently explained by the familial complex? Even a writer like Reich, so careful to situate desire in relation to the forms of social production, demonstrating thereby that there is no psychoneuroses that is not also an actual neuroses, continues to present the actual factors as acting by means of a repressive deprivation, though sexual stasis, and as arising afterward, which leads him to maintain a kind of diffuse oedipalism, since the stasis or the actual privative factor only defines the energy of the neurosis but not the content that for its own part refers to the infantile Oedipal conflict, this old conflict becoming reactivated by the actual stasis. To read the Reich footnote. All neurotic fantasies can be traced back to the child's early sexual relationship to the parents. However, if it were not continually nourished by the contemporary stasis of excitation which it initially produced, the child-parent conflict could not, by itself, cause a permanent disturbance of the psychic equilibrium. Well, I mean, in a nutshell, right, we talked about how, like, there's this kind of problem with the neurotic and the psychotic are sort of conflating, right? It's hard to differentiate them. And so it seems like uh, in either case, right, Oedipus is the point of departure and arrival for them, right? Could you repeat, please? I think I phased out. Sure. Um, it seems like part of the thing with, um, like we said earlier, right, the, the problem with the neurotic and the psychotic is how do you kind of differentiate the two, right? Because they seem to sort of, they seem to, if not be conflationary, uh, at least have a confluence, right? And so it looks like the suggestion is that there are not two groups, there is no difference in nature between neurosis and psychosis, psychosis, for any case, desiring production is the cause, the ultimate cause of both the psychotic versions that shatter Oedipus or overwhelment, and of the neurotic reverberations that constitute it. So like, at one level, it seems like Oedipus is kind of, for psychoanalysis, the point of departure and arrival for the, the two groups. But let's say Deleuze and Guadar are going even further, right, to say, but more kind of directly, right, desiring production is the cause, the ultimate cause of both the psychotic subversions that shatter Oedipus or overwhelmment in either of those points, and of the neurotic reverberations that constitute it. And that's that's the huge difference that I've been seeing between... Oh, can y'all hear me? I just realized my mic is closed off. Yes, you're you good. Can use... Cool. Uh, between um, what Deleuze and Guadagno are doing in psychoanalysis is, is desire. Like, that is the gulf of difference between the, the two, because desire is not, uh, you know, 
the Prius or whatever, the prime mover or whatever in, in yeah, the oceanic Gulf. Uh, uh, for psychoanalysis, for psychoanalysis, you start with need that can't be articulated. So, um, so a an infant cries um, just because it 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 has unpleasant sensations or something, but it doesn't even necessarily have a knowledge of why it's crying is the idea <clears throat> and only does the me and then the meaning of its cries get in, in, impinged on on it so so the parental figures feed it whenever it cries and then over time through repetition it's like oh i'm i'm crying because i'm hungry and then uh and then you get demand which is the articulation of this unarticulatable need it's just, I guess it would stand in the same place as intensity. Um, but the problem with that is that uh, uh, it's, it's impossible because there is no, you know, there is no uh, meaning to the need per se. And then you get desire as a way out of the impossibility of demand, which, which still has its own impossibility, but in desire you now can have uh equivocity like in desire what i say can mean more than what a person thinks my words mean um and so then you can get the chain of signification moving in metonymy and whatnot but for deleuze and guattari desire is this like you know it's almost like a cosmic principle of sorts and, uh, and yeah, Oedipus, for Freud at least, and Lacan in the beginning, Oedipus is the beginning and the end. So even in, in psychosis, sometimes um, Lacan later moves away from this, but uh, the idea is that you, you try to turn the psychotic structure into a neurotic structure by reintroducing Oedipus and, and you know, laws and, and, and the symbolic. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's pretty much it, because if, if the neurotic and the psychotic right, are ways of talking about desire, which we saw in the beginning of the R, because we're talking about the, the, the id and the pleasure principle, right? So, we're talking about desire, and we're talking about Oedipus then as this kind of point of departure and arrival there, right? Well, what happened to desire, right? Because desire seems to be the fundamental thing here. And so to your point, right, is it a question of, um, is it this question of of this reverberation and the triangle on that, right, and creating the conditions for this triangulation for there to be desire? Or isn't desire already happening without any of this, right? And therefore, when you when these structures interact with desire, whether it's neurotic or psychotic, as we're seeing, doesn't desire, since it's already there, do something to them, right? Yeah, I mean, I think insofar as we're born into some sort of nuclear family type culture, your your desire gets edipalized to a certain extent that triangulation is there but i th think that it's a 
it's a uh, it's an obvious notion that uh, adolescents then try to get outside of the daddy mommy me um, and rebellion um, and the the psychoanalytic practice actually isn't so bad because they they they're really against uh, this kind of interpretation that attributes a single meaning to the uh, to the so-called analyzans words like they want their interpretation to be ambiguous so any number of directions can can be taken but then the next move is to bring them right back into that triangulation to say that like their all their whatever fantasies in this way of speaking uh re reverberate back to daddy mommy me and that all your troubles have to do with uh, with you know childhood memories that freud ends up saying might not exist in the first place um so little column a little column b you know it sounds like it's hard to not start in Oedipus insofar as that's how our uh, culture, society, whatever uh, is structured. Um, but to be able to get out of Oedipus, I think, is, uh, I don't want to say a natural thing, but it seems to be attempted everywhere. Um, but only, only insofar as we become, you know, tamed so-called animals that we get brought back into Oedipus. And the funny thing about that is that, um, you know, this symbolic order thing actually make makes you more aggressive and more all of these other things. So it doesn't actually tame you. It, it, uh, it makes you enjoy more. And, you know, it produces almost the perfect capitalist subject in that way. Love it. All right. Um, I'm now going to move to the next paragraph. Good combo. I just want to make sure we keep moving. Um, <sighs> but the Oedipalists are not saying anything different from this when they remark that an actual deprivation or frustration <clears throat> cannot be experienced except in the midst of an older internal qualitative conflict, which blocks not merely the roads prohibited by reality, but also those that reality leaves open, and that the ego forbids itself in its turn, the double impasse formula. Quote, Could one find examples illustrating the diagram of actual neuroses in the prisoner, or the concentration camp victim, or the worker harassed by work? It is not certain that they would furnish a large quota, our systematic tendency is not to accept the evident iniquities of reality without taking stock of them, without trying to disclose in what sense the disorder of the world is manifested in, the subjective disorder, even if it is, with the passing of time, inscribed within more or less irreversible structures." We understand this sentence, but can't help finding its tone disturbing. The following choice is imposed upon us. Either the actual factor is conceived in a totally exterior, privative fashion, which is an impossibility, or it descends into an internal, qualitative conflict that is necessarily understood in relation to Oedipus. Oedipus, the fountainhead, where the psychoanalyst washes his hands of the world's iniquities. 
I'm just going to continue because that was a really clean paragraph. In an altogether different direction, if we consider the idealist deviations of psychoanalysis, we see in them an interesting attempt at giving the actual factors a status other than ulterior or privative. This came about as two concerns were found to be linking in an apparent paradox. For example, in Jung, the concern for curtailing the interminable cure by addressing oneself to the present or actual state of the disorder, and the concern for going back further than Oedipus, even further than the pre-Oedipal, for going much further back, as if what was most actual was also the most primary, the shortest, the furthest removed. Jung presents his archetypes as actual factors that extend in fact beyond the familial images in the transference, as well as being archaic factors infinitely older and from an order of time which is not that of the infantile factors themselves. But nothing has been gained thereby, since the actual factor ceases to be privative only provided it enjoys the rights of the ideal, and does not cease to be an afterward, except by becoming a beyond, which must be signified anagogically, anagogically by Oedipus, instead of depending on it analytically. This necessarily results in the reintroduction of the afterward in the temporal difference, as the astonishing distribution proposed by Jung attests. For the young, whose problems concern the family and love, Freud's method. And for those less young, whose problems have to do with social adaptation, Adler. And Jung for the adults and the old people, whose problems have to do with the ideal. And we have seen what remains common to Freud and Jung. The unconscious was always measured against myths, and not against the units of production although the measuring is done in two contrary directions. But what does it matter, after all, if morality or religion find an analytical and regressive meaning in Oedipus, or if Oedipus finds an anagogical or prospective meaning in morality and religion? Real quick, because I know Ken's going to want the, uh, the citation there. That uh, What they're referring to is Carl Jung's Contributions to Analytical Psychology, 1948 chapters 1 through 4 and page 345 so chapters 1 through 4 plus one standalone page yeah i mean i know where that's from so that's from his stages of life in volume 8 essay and then uh and then the first couple essays into volume 7 and it's i mean they're decent critiques you know his stages i actually really just don't like his stages of life essay at all and i don't agree with him um on how he sees that you know first half of life this second half of life this I, it se sounds like nonsense to me um uh and then the uh yeah so what young was trying to do in volume seven was to um sort of mix together Young and Ad, uh, not Young, uh, Freud and Adler. So he was he was working with both the the will to power and uh, the Eros principle. That's what he was doing there. Um, the the ideal thing is a little mis. Uh, now uh, is a little misrepresenting though because, I mean, if the archetype isn't is an ideal 
Um, then, you know, it would be the full scale of the spectrum. Uh, so, so you'd have to include like every quality of a certain what, uh, in this case, a mythological motif. So for the wise old man, you'd also have to, not only wisdom, but you'd also have to include like crotchetiness and, and, and being a man who, who, um, who abuses his power and sort of manipulates, uh, um, manipulates his students and stuff like that. So I don't know how ideal the archetype actually is. And even then, that's the archetypal image. So he draws a difference between this irrepresentable psychoid sphere and then the archetype as such. Um, and the... Uh, uh, and the, the psychoid archetype actually reminds me of the body's body without organs. But I'll leave that there. I think by the capital I idea, they're trying to say like there's like the the capital A archetype versus the archetype. So like the the suggestion would be that like there's an archetype that's maybe it's like a form or perhaps it's like a numina here, and then there's like the archetypes that are just kind of um, uh, sort of emanated from that. Yeah, so like a, a really terrible one is like the is the creation of Joseph Campbell, right? With his his hero, how every you know every story is is the hero myth, and then he sort of idolizes that. Young doesn't do that, you know. That's garbage. Um, Young suggest suggests that you know, in so far as you mime the the hero you're becoming a, a a flat collective figure and you're going to be sacrificed at some point like so i don't hate campbell but he did some damage did, i, I did you, i'm i'm not did a you hear that Brooks? no what Shh. star wars oh dude <laughs> dude no one mentioned star wars like I, I didn't hear that at all, and I'm just going to continue. Uh, I'm not a fan of the Campbell. Uh, it's a long story. It's fine. We're moving past Star Wars. God damn it, Jack. To the next paragraph. We maintain the cause of the disorder, neurosis or psychosis, is always in desiring production, in its relation to social production in their different or conflicting regimes, and the modes of investment that desiring production performs in the system of social production. The actual factor is desiring production, insofar as it is caught up in this relationship, this conflict, and these modalities. Nor is this factor either ulterior or privative. Being con constitutive of the full life of desire, it is contemporary with the most tender age, and it accompanies this life with every step. It does not arise after Oedipus. It is in no way presupposes an Oedipal organization, nor a pre-Oedipal organization. On the contrary, <clears throat> it is Oedipus that depends on desiring production, either as stimulus of one form or another, a simple inductor through which the an organization of desiring production is formed, beginning with early childhood, 
or as an effect of the psychic and social repression imposed on desiring production by social reproduction by means of the family. <sighs> the term actual is not used because it de designates what is most recent, but because it would be opposed to former or infantile. It is used in terms of its difference with respect to virtual. And it is the Oedipus complex that is virtual, either inasmuch as it must be actualized in a neurotic formation as a derived effect of the actual factor, or inasmuch as it is dismembered and dissolved in a psychotic formation as the direct effect of this same factor. It is indeed in this sense that the idea of the afterward seemed to us to be a final paralogism in psychoanalytic theory and practice. Active, desiring production, in its very process, invests from the beginning a constellation of somatic, social, and metaphysical relations that do not follow after Oedipal's psychological relations, but that on the contrary will be applied to the underlying Oedipal constellation defined by reaction, or else will exclude this constellation from the field of investment constituting their activity. Undecidable, virtual, reactive, or reactional, such is Oedipus. It is only a reactional formation of formation that results from a reaction to desiring production. It is a serious mistake to consider this formation in isolation, abstractly, independently of the actual factor that coexists with it and to which it reacts. Uh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll dive in. Um, there, he's back. Uh, this middle one I want to rewrite, reread. It is Oedipus that depends on desiring production either as stimulus of one form or another, a simple inductor through which the anatomical organization of desiring production is formed, beginning with early childhood, or as an effect of the psychic and social repression imposed on desiring production by social reproduction by means of the family. Okay. Uh, if we jump back and we start going back to all we've talked about with desiring production and how it forms and how it works through the syntheses and how it's produced and how it operates. All of that stuff that's happening, the connections and disconnections, the desiring machines, everything that's going on, all the desire that's being produced, Oedipus depends on that to be created. Oedipus doesn't exist prior to that. The material that creates Oedipus, the, uh, the, the stuff that makes Oedipus a thing, which we'll get into in a second, because there's a whole fight we're about to have about virtual and actual. I know we've done it before. Just stay here. Just stay here with this part. Uh, desiring production basically creates all of that. Now, it's either that it stimulates. It's the inductor through which the anatomical organization of desiring production is formed, which happens with early childhood, or it's an effect of the social and psychic repression imposed on desiring production by the social reproduction by means of the family. The difference in regimes, the larger giant uh, social regime, the molar, that, and the family and all of that, uh, it pushing down on desiring machines. That's the other way it gets formed. This central thing, if there's a, and I know why it's in italics, this is, uh, this is the part that matters to really begin to understand and because it a lot of this and the functionality of how oedipus is created and stimulated and all of that is uh in chapter three going to be coming front and center so if you're having trouble understanding this uh please now would be the time to 
uh, start asking them questions uh, for sure. So I'll leave questions. We'll talk about that section. We'll get to the second part in a second, which is a whole thing. But this first part, everyone good there? I mean, I'm going to assume that means everyone grasps everything. Um, but again, it's uh, the utilization of family as that repression. Uh, Oedipus is either stimulated from beneath, because it, it plays inside of the psyche, by desire and production that kind of forms around it and produces it beginning with early childhood, or as an effect of the psychic and social repression imposed upon it by the social reproduction of the molar side of the desiring regimes, the social uh, side of things, through the family, as they've talked about at this point. Um, they use the term actual here. The actual factor is desiring production. Uh, oh, God. Do I even want to start down this road? I want to get through this rest of this chapter today. Let's just keep it in the confines of this, though, because if I follow this, what they're basically trying to argue is like, so if you if you take Oedipus to be point of departure and arrival, then, well, of course, desire is going to begin and end with Oedipus, right? Or, and this is how I think the retrospection works, right? Because, so that's what it was. Well, it had to be Oedipus, right? Because that's where, you know, like, okay, reality and pleasure principle, you know, so it's going to start and move toward Oedipus, right? But it sounds like more fundamentally, right? Desiring production is the condition for all of that, right? And so th th that moving forward doesn't necessarily rely on Oedipus, but instead Oedipus needs that in order to either be actualized or in order to do like a, a what I'm calling like a damning. Because you're right, last time we had like a, I think it was like a 30 minute discussion on the virtual, the actual, and the real. <laughs> yeah, it's a, but we'll skip that whole fight because that, that ended up taking up far too long. But it was like two weeks. It was stupid. Um, look, the, the last sentence, the last two sentences are kind of the, the really important gist and thrust of that whole thing he's talking about there. Oedipus is only a reactional formation, a formation that results from a reaction to desiring production. Uh, again, the formation uh, previously, commonly in psychoanalytic thought, even Lacanian thought, it is not a reactional formation. It is uh, prescriptive formation. It's there. It is a thing. It is itself its own formation and things form within it or react with it. They are being very clear here. This is a reactional formation. Desiring production makes it, stimulates it and sets it up, or social factors come in and pressure from the top to create it. It reacts. It is not actually the thing that desiring production is made of or the natural shape of it. As they say, it is, they continue, it is a serious mistake to consider this formation in isolation, abstractly, independently of the actual factor that coexists with it and to which it reacts. Uh, which is also, uh, that is a bit of a, and Ken's in here, you can tell me if I'm wrong. That's a, a poke at Lacan for sure, uh, because he does very much sort of do that. And a lot of people have done this, where they pull the Oedipalization as a concept sort of out of things and talk about it in a vacuum. Uh, and that is the thing they're talking about, that you're now describing the thing without the things that make it up or stimulate it or create it. And at that moment, 
Like this is, this is representation. This we're, we're going to get into that a lot more as we continue on, but this is the challenge and this is the problem. I will continue to the next paragraph. I was going to say, I think, I think Ken is too busy looking at the benefits of a family life, uh, work environment. And we all know work is family. Don't you know? Do everything for your family. Don't join a union. They're not your family. We are. Yet, this is what psychoanalysis does when it closets itself in Oedipus and determines its progressions and regressions in terms of Oedipus, or even in relationship to it. Thus, the idea of pre-Oedipal regression, by means of which one sometimes attempts to characterize psychosis, it is like a Cartesian devil. The regressions and progressions are made only within the artificially closed vessel of Oedipus, and in reality depend on a state of forces that is changing, yet always actual and contemporary, within an Oedipal desiring production. Desiring production has solely an actual existence. Progressions and regressions are merely the effectuations of a virtual that is always fulfilled as perfectly as it can be by virtue of the states of desire. Rarely have psychiatrists and psychoanalysts been able to establish a really inspired direct relationship with either child or adult schizophrenics. Gisela Pankow and Bruno Bettelheim break new ground in this area by the force of their theory and the efficacy of their therapy. It is not by chance that both of them call into question the notion of regression. Taking the example of the bodily cares administered to a schizophrenic, massages, baths, swathings, Gisela Pankow asks, if it is a matter of reaching the invalid at and valid at the at the point of his regression, the invalid. I'm going to re-say that. Gisela Pankow asks if it is a matter of reaching the invalid at the point of his regression, in order to give him indirect symbolic satisfactions that would allow him to resume a progression, to take up a progressive pace. It is not at all a question, she says, of administering care that the schizophrenic presumably did not receive when he was a baby. It is a question of giving the patient tactile and other bodily sensations that lead him to a recognition of the limits of his body. It is a question of the recognition of an unconscious desire, and not of this desire's satisfaction. Recognizing the desire is tantamount to setting desiring production back into motion on the body without organs, in the very place to which the schizo had retreated, in order to silence and suffocate this production. This recognition of desire, this position of desire, this sign, refers to an order of real and actual productivity that is not to be confused with an indirect or symbolic satisfaction, and that, in its stops as in its starts, is as distinct from the pre-Oedipal regression as from progressive restoration of Oedipus. I'm going to just quote you there, Ken. Uh, the pre-Oedipal is a fantasy that justifies the Oedipal. Yes, this is... That would, they, they talk about that. It's a great way to put it. They talk about it a bunch inside of this section, but also before the way that uh, it sort of becomes the thing we create other things around in order to continue to prove its existence as if it is in a vacuum. Uh, well, this is Oedipalized because everything has to fit within it. Suddenly, the pre-Oedipal ultimately exists just to fulfill the thing we already believe. Uh, it's a great way of putting it. I like that. But now we are at the end. That's the end. Hey, look at that. One day for this one. This one took two weeks last time. Um, maybe three. Shit, three. Um, any questions about this entire section? Let's open it up. We're here. Uh, 
why do they refer to desire as a capitalized sign? Rimka, that is a really good question, actually. Let me find my copy. Make sure that that's the case in the hard copy as well, because this PDF is uh, wonky. Jack, if you want to talk, go for it. Let me go back. I think that's the. I think that's a reference to the third paralogism. Uh, you mean the critique of representation, uh, lack, displacement? Yeah, they say the, this is one eleven. The three errors con uh, concerning desire are called lack, law, and signifier. It's one and the same error, and idealism forms the highest conception of the unconscious. But yeah, I, I took that because um, they go on to say right. And the signifier into a distributor and no longer a meaning. For these notions cannot be prevented from dragging the theological cortege behind insufficiency of being, guilt, signification. So it looks like what they're talking about there with um, the capital S sign is they're talking about um, subjectivity and innate. <laughs> hey, everyone. Subjectivity and. Um, uh, the, the third synthesis there, but uh, in terms of the paralogism. Yeah, it's a, as I read it, it's not that they're referring to desire itself as a sign, but instead uh, the recognition and the position of desire. That sign, that sign refers to an order of real and actual productivity. Um, the recognition of the desire and the position of it. Um, that's the thing that they're talking about here. So they're talking about the schizo jumping back on the body without organs and being able to return because he's able to once again begin the process. Uh, and that process is, if you think of, uh, I would say it like this, massages, baths, baths, and swathings as Pankow is talking about it are kind of, uh, if we want to talk about a person kind of being like a car, this is the jump start. Like doing those things are ways of Connecting, finding their, what their body is, to redeveloping their body without organs, making those connections uh, immediate, real, and actual. And that's what bodies do, because we're talking about, you know, again, connecting, connecting, connecting. A massage and all of those things would be an extraordinary number of connections happening constantly. Uh, this kind of thing allows the process of all of this to sort of restart, desiring production to begin again, uh, because all we need is connection connection in the first synthesis is not just connecting it is simultaneous connecting and desiring production at the same time so it's a little bit of a push to uh, desiring production to sort of start again rather than the opposite which uh, is essentially what they're talking about heavily here where we're saying uh, you know pushing someone back on the BWO and, and collapsing them because uh, we want them to be edipalized. That's why the schizo does that. They, they can't connect anything. Their, their connections stop. You're, you're halting the machine as it's moving. The, the fuel stopped with everything else. They, they can't, you can't have connections without the desiring production. And desiring production requires connections and disconnections. This, this is, they're not like, I would say that they're symbiotic, but that's assuming that they're two things. They're not. It's, it's an immediate, intense, singular of both of them. And so when you when you basically are putting them inside of edipalization, or any of us really, you're basically defining how we can connect. And as soon as you start defining that, 
like connections aren't really happening anymore. They use the example of the child who starts getting confused. Well, can I touch that? Is that part of family? Is this mine? Is that mine? And this immediately starts cascading and the schizo just shuts down, uh, becomes catatonic, you know, lost because they're on their own body without organs. They're, they're hiding there. They're, there's just no production happening. So by jumping back in and going, well, we're going to do massages and baths and these other bits of essentially touch therapy, which is what it is, uh, is a chance for people to start that process back up and to kickstart their battery going again. Yeah, and I should add to that, like, uh, the difference between the signifier and the uh, sign, right? So this is page 112. Put back under the yoke of despotism, whose effect is castration. There, where one recognizes the stroke, <laughs> signifier itself. But the sign of desire is never signifying. It exists in the thousands of productive break flows that never allow themselves to be signified with the unary stroke of castration. It is always a point sign of many directions. Polyvacity is the basis of a punctual semiology. Um, we are on page 130. But I, I think that's the, the tension they're highlighting, is the tension of the third. Um, I mean, one more time on the third uh, synthesis, right? We're, we're, we're going to be looking at all three, right? But particularly the way that um, distribution and uh, consumption and consummation play a role in, these, uh, in the assemblage here. So... I'll give my short summary. I'll give it a shot. Um, these last few sections, and some of them have been very long. This is about talking how representation, we've been using Oedipus as the example of it, uh, but we're talking about how uh, such a thing interacts with the unconscious, how such a thing plays within the unconscious with Oedipus, uh, and how it plays with the connecting of desiring machines, the disconnecting of them, and the creation of signs on the body without organs is webcam parent said we're coming back around to that and then now talking about kind of uh the afterword as they say it which is uh the sort of assumption of the whole person that, that places uh so social repression itself uh, uh second to uh psychic repression that you know our problems are coming solely from within we need to work on ourselves be triangulated and edipalized we need to see a doctor it's my fault my problems my family as i was growing up blah 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 but uh as they talk about it we're talking about ultimately desiring machines that fuels all of it and we're finally coming to that desiring machines are fueling the whole thing desiring machines are part of it so let's actually talk about how they operate let's let's realize that such a thing as oedipus can only exist as a result, as a reaction to desiring machines, that they're, it's built by desiring machines. The form is made by desiring machines. However it's made, that's still the case. So we need to step back and not talk about how Oedipus or representation is this sort of core nature and the thing that forms us, but let's talk about how we actually create the thing that forms Oedipus. That's my takeaway, since no one else is talking. Yeah, I'm I'm curious about what the status of the internal is for Deleuze and Guattari. Meaning? I don't know. That's the thing. Because, like, I'm going through difference in repetition, and he uses internal there sometimes, and, like, difference in itself. Um, uh, but, you know, this whole problem with uh suggesting um 
the the Oedipus as an internal thing, like uh, like you have in in ecology, you have like this thing called the chronosystem, where you have like a a microsystem and and then a few layers, and then the macrosystem being like the cultural order or something. But putting Oedipus in the microsystem. Um, I don't. Th- I don't think that's what they're doing. No. Yeah, yeah. I'm not. I'm just trying to flush it out. Um, I think they're doing the opposite of that in a way, saying that some that Oedipus is somehow maintained, quote unquote, externally. But um, but I don't see how. You know, I favor the the whole non-orientable surface thing where inside and outside are sort of just totally contingent and there's nothing necessary they're almost faculties of identification so i was just wondering what the status of of internal and external is for it's an open question i have no idea you know Uh, i'm i'm generally hesitant to say that they believe in even internal or external uh they're Their whole entire thing around molecular and molar, I think, would be the closest that they come to saying such thing. I think they use these terms to be like internal and external because they're topographical more than anything. And and again, terms that are a little bit easier to sort of, you know, grasp what they're trying to say. But uh, to me, it's like Oedipus, the way they're describing it, uh, it's if there is a place where social repression and structures have a pressure down and uh, desiring machines uh, almost are continually pushing up where they meet that where they slam together uh, that sort of space right there that's a little fuzzy and not really either uh, uh, molar or molecular that's where the formation of oedipus starts being made by the combination of my family that is sort of molding me society that is molding me my desires pointing upwards and the generalized incentivizations of uh, the way i'm being raised and all of that yeah, I think it's going to depend there because the molar molecular is one way of, of distinguishing two regimes, right? Just that social production, desiring production are two ways of distinguishing regimes. But if you mean it in like the personal and the collective sense, like the way I think about it is because they have a point where they say like it's, I, I believe they they say something to the effect of obviously the personal and conscious is insufficient, but so too is the collective, right? Because I think what they they try to argue is that desire flows with with the unconscious as they're conceiving it, right? Desire moves in and out of what we would want to call a personal collective unconscious, right? So you're always in a collective, uh, you know, you're always in like a collective assemblage, as is modern way to call it, right? And so whatever you know, what's happening to you is happening in this context, and there's connections there, right? And so I don't I don't think you have anything like if you mean internal, I don't know if it, it would always, I don't think you can have anything purely individual where there's no like social contest or social relationship. But uh, likewise, everything social, right? There would be no, uh, because it all seems to move in and out for them. Yeah, I mean, I will go as far as to say that the body itself is a collective, right? Because the body in and of itself expresses an entire evolutionary history. And you can sort of see Deleuze's vulgarized Leibnizianism in this, but in that expression of an entire history, it's already a collective body as well, despite just being you know, on, our, on our sort of uh, sensible level, one collective body, but in the depths, it's, uh, 
it's it's going to be just this uh, mass process involving many other things. So the problem there is a vulgar Leibnizianism is a Newtonian calculism, calculus rather. See, this is what I mean. No one should listen to what you're saying. That's the best joke I'll tell all week. And and we'll get into the so the difficulty with using a term like individuals inside of something like this is we aren't there yet. We aren't talking yet about like we've only had the conception and talk a little bit about the creation of the subject and how it works within different people. Uh, saying that things are different between individuals, absolutely. Like we, there's a reality to that in terms of treatment, for example, in terms of you know they, there's a lot of that. The question of what whether something is shared or not between individuals starts getting into that okay we need to have there's a larger chat to have with all of that with the implications sort of across uh, multiple books from Deleuze and Guattari and multiple bits of reading from a lot of people I'm, I'm more hesitant to say we should dive into that right now it's a great question though like it's getting really at the core of what they're talking about here which is uh, again the ego which it naturally the you know, the Freudian way. The ego is made, the, 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 the triangle, the ego, id, and superego. And everyone just naturally needs to learn, uh, you know, that they shouldn't fuck their mom because they really want to. They also want to kill their dad. They need to learn not to do that. They need to learn these things because they already have this pre-designed set of desires. And they're like, no, desire is powering that. Can we talk about desire and realize that that formation was actually something that's made after desire's already been produced? And if that's the case, we need to step away from the idea that Oedipus is a thing that the pre-Oedipal is like a, a real thing that we need to actually talk about how these things function and how it all works. And they're like, get really to the material realities of psychiatry. Yeah, guilty on all three. All right, cool. Well, with that, I'm going to uh, go ahead and close out the recording. I should have probably closed it out before I had that ramble just now. Um, thank all of you for joining. As always, uh, phenomenal discussions it's always exciting to have and uh, i thank all of you for coming every week uh, next week we will be diving into the process uh, which is 2.9 uh, which starts to get into a little bit further of uh, what we were talking about here today which is great so thank all of you for joining us and i, I look forward to it bye, -bye.